Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy in the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here on a snowy February afternoon, starting episode 27 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. This week has been a pretty intense one for me. In recording the previous podcast episode and having a, a whole bunch of sort of spiritual, social, emotional awakenings and a really hardworking phone call or two with my podcast editor and a woman who runs a foundation, I really am now hoping to be more effective and productive in, in a much better space. This whole process is difficult. You know, people talk to me all the time about the podcast and how much they like it. And it leads me, I take in what they say, I process where they're coming from. What I'm finding in this journey, the podcast journey, developing Molly's foundation journey, where do I go from here journey is incredibly enlightening. And, and what it's showing me <laughs> is that things come back around again and again and again. In this episode, because these things are so prevalent in my life and have been for always and ever in every grief and traumatic event of my life, the social aspects of grief. So we talk a lot and you can go online and look at physical you know, effects of grief and all the things that can go wrong in your body. And then psychological effects of grief, depression, addiction, all of these things. But the other piece that's incredibly difficult, and I think it's why children who suffer loss of a sibling or a parent struggle so much, is it's the social piece, the social decimation that a traumatic event can have on somebody. So in this episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. I'm going to share the messages that people have sent to me, because I will have to say, if I had to think of one word to describe the social effect that grief has on your life, it would be isolation. It is an incredibly big responsibility to carry grief. It becomes the grieving person's job and responsibility to make sure that their grief doesn't upset the apple cart. It becomes our job to maintain composure and, and not show our emotions in public because we might offend somebody. It becomes our job to smile and act happy at a high school graduation where all your daughter's friends are in their cap and gown and your daughter is in a pink dress six feet under, two miles away in the cemetery. If I was very honest with how I was feeling most of the time, I do believe I would, I would have no friends at all. Not that I have a ton of friends. I have a lot of love, but grief and this particular grief has cost me greatly. In the process of doing the podcast, I love when people reach out. There's a common thread in the things that people say. So I'm not going to share the names of these people, but one person called and this mom had suffered a loss and we don't know one another. She's come across my podcast. So hi, Barb. I know you don't know me from Mary. I love that she said Mary, that's Molly's name, but I've been feeling compelled to reach out to you. In July, I went into preterm labor with twins. I went to the hospital once, sent me home, went back, ignored me, and I lost a son because of it. It was the most traumatizing thing that has ever happened and probably will happen to me in my life. As it was all happening, I literally was planning to find an attorney as soon as I could. Instantly, I thought about Molly B., whose story I never actually heard in its entirety. I'm not a native to your town, but we have lots of mutual friends. I ended up reaching out to a law firm, and after their careful investigations, told me they would not go further with the case. I was heartbroken. I haven't pursued anything further. It was just last night that I finally read Molly's story. I am so sorry she had to go through all she went through, and I'm sorry you did too. The fact that you were just overlooked, that's how I felt. I just don't know what to do and figured if I reached out, you might have a word or two of advice. And if this is totally out of line, I apologize. I just won't get over this until someone at least acknowledges that they're wrong. It was all so wrong. Here's a stranger in the middle of the night reaching out to someone she's never met because she's heard a story that I was willing to share. I talked about how my whole life I'm told to be quiet, right? Be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, don't talk. And how... Those admonitions were far more troubling and damaging sometimes than the things I was supposed to not talk about. And so here's a person that was willing to reach out and share her legal issues and share her frustration around the death of her child and to share how decimated she feels. I've written back and I said that she was totally in line. I apologize for what she was going through. 
And I suggested we connect and meet in person. And so we're going to try to make that happen. So what I am for this person is a connection, a social connection to somebody that won't judge her, that won't tell her what to do, that won't tell her she's not feeling things appropriately. She apologized to me and thought she was out of line to reach out. Of course, she apologized and felt she was out of line. Society tells us distance, 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 stay away, stay away, stay away. My job to keep my mouth shut so I don't, don't offend that person. If she hadn't have reached out to me, I wouldn't be able to be of support to her. Knowing people like this helps me because it, it creates a community. I was sitting at, I, th I think I might've mentioned this before. I was sitting at childcare watching Jack Jack play and I was talking to Jen, Rachel's mother. And we talked about how our best friends now were either grieving moms or people that didn't know us before the loss in this social pressure to somehow return to what you once were. And, you know, very difficult thing for people to understand is you never return to what you were because what you were requires somebody to be alive that isn't. I think this is a natural piece of death. I think that I know that when my grandmother died, all of my mother and my aunts and uncles were, of course, very, very sad that she died. She was in her 90s, though. It's the natural course of things. It was her job to get old and die, and she did it beautifully. All of my aunts and uncles and my mom were very upset. But their lives in most ways have, have continued on because we expect our whole lives to lose our parents when they're old, when we're old. My grandmother was in her 90s and my mother was in her 70s. That's a much easier way to lose somebody than being a mother losing a child or being a child losing a parent or a father losing a child as well. She continued along talking to me. We've continued a conversation. And she said, I started listening to your podcast today and I'm crying. <laughs> it's so nice to hear someone that understands. I would just love to get together. I send some of these little messages to my editor because when I'm feeling frustrated, like I can't pull it together and can't hold it together, these things come up and they make me very happy. So that's one connection. Here's another one. And this again is from someone that I don't know very well, but he was willing to reach out and comment and talk to me about, I did a Facebook Live. So I'm starting my Facebook Lives again. And he was willing to reach out and check in with me. And here's what he said. You have helped me a lot in dealing with grief. I am fortunate, however, in that I have never lost a child, but I did lose a spouse to illness in 2005. It's interesting to hear you speak about the phone. Ever since that happened, I still do not like talking on the phone. I am unable to understand the why of this, but it is still very real. I even still suffer from post-war traumatic stress and fear of the future. But just listening to your posts is helping me tremendously. Thanks again for the time that you put into this. So there are times when I feel... <laughs> you know, incredibly disheveled and disorganized and my house is a mess and I feel like I'm always running behind. But I look at the isolation of these two people. Here are two people who I don't know very well. I wouldn't know them if I passed them on the street. Neither of them have met me in person. And because they're listening to a story I'm willing to tell or something I'm willing to say, they have the ability to reach out. This process has also taught me how many people are out there. I've listened, I've started listening to several other podcasts, really learning how pervasive grief and struggling with grief is. The next thing that comes to mind for me is a foundation in Manchester, New Hampshire called the Friends of Anya. This foundation was, is in honor of a little girl named Anya who died at age eight. And like Molly, had an illness that was overlooked and misdiagnosed and not paid attention to as it should have been. Her parents saw how much their younger daughter struggled, struggled with the loss of her sister. And there was really very minimal places for her to go to get support. So the entire mission of this foundation is providing grief groups and classes and get-togethers for children who have lost anybody. It's very similar to Camp Erin, that weekend camp that Gracie went to that's just for kids dealing with grief. This foundation is located in Manchester, New Hampshire, and they run three eight-week sessions a year. They have a beautiful home, beautiful Victorian house with all the, these wonderful meeting rooms that are colorful and soothing. And they really focus on providing cognitive and hands-on tools to teach strategies for grief, dealing with grief, and to connect kids so they're not the only one. And I look at Gracie's struggles and how much she just wanted somebody that understood how she was feeling without having to explain it and how isolated she was in her grief journey. Back to me, back to good old Barb. So I have three sort of huge grief times in my life. So the first one, of course, is the trauma from child abuse. And, and the grieving that comes with being abused is that you grieve something you never had. I never just got to have a normal, healthy, happy childhood. I know that in the process of recovering from and moving along with dealing with having been abused, 
how much my life changed. And some of that was around the fact that while I was being abused and that was an active part of my life, I had to put on a fake face and go through life like everything was fine. And I'll be getting into that more deeply in future episodes. But my whole entire social structure fell apart. My home life was falling apart. It was obviously unhealthy if these things were happening. The grief and the fear I brought into my home, I'm sure was noticeable, even if it wasn't defined. My social life at school was altered because, because I spent so much time trying to block out what I was going through that I was also blocking out everything around me. And, you know, and kids, kids can be pretty intuitive and also not always very understanding. And this was the 70s when no one talked about anything. I couldn't even bring it up to anybody. I mean, I never, ever once felt I could talk about this to anybody until I finally was able to talk to my mother. I felt disconnected. I went from being sort of in the popular group to really being on the fringes of, of my whole entire grade, quite honestly. And I was just distracted. So I know that once, once I was able to tell and I was be able to get some therapy and sort of rebuild my life, my social life and my social structure became much better and much more healthy and returned to a more normal state for me. I also found running. And of course, running was this huge therapy for me that gave me a community through which I could express grief and win races. And so I didn't really have to talk about anything too personal. And I was able to really express my inner feelings through running. When I went to college and then now all my friends were elite runners like me and all of us talk about all of our secrets. It was amazing on my team of, you know, 14 girls, not one girl in that group grew up with a normal childhood. We all had pretty significant issues that led to running being a true therapy for me. As a child, my social responsibility as a victim was to be quiet, was to live life like nothing was happening to me and was to be dishonest about it. Don't tell anybody. Once I did tell somebody and could move along and try to get better, my social job was to continue to maintain normalcy, to continue to be quiet, to work hard to get better. I was allowed to talk to my therapist, but no one else. And I remember not wanting to talk to my therapist. If I wasn't supposed to talk, why talk to her? It was very, very tricky. So again, it was my job to maintain this normalcy. My job to make sure that the basket wasn't tipped, that the boat didn't sink. The next really major trauma for me was when I had baby Gordy and lost him at 25 weeks. The social responsibilities for me in that, when Kenny and I lost that baby, we were not yet married. I believe both of us were still actually officially married to our exes. I believe that to be true, although I could be wrong. But we were, we were nowhere near being able to really truly have a baby in a way that would be socially acceptable. And I remember before I knew anything was wrong with this baby, we went round and round about <laughs> how people would take this news and all, and all of this. And, you know, we just, we just sort of went with it. When we realized that this baby was not going to live, nobody knew. My social responsibility at that time was to maintain his kids' happiness and safety. His kids were all middle school age at this time, middle school, high school, young high school. And the last thing a student in a small town like Concord wants is that kind of attention. Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? And so we told nobody. My grief and my trauma and my loss was completely done by myself. Maybe one or two friends as the process went along, but even then nothing could be told. It was, you know, it happened over the summer. When I went back to school in the fall, it was like I had had this normal summer. How was your summer? Oh, it was fine. So my job at that time was to maintain family stability for Kenny's kids, to maintain social acceptance and such for them as well, so that they would not, you know, suffer the, any social repercussions for, for our actions. That was a large, 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 burden to bear. The following probably big, big trauma for me would be my job loss. And again, for me, going through that, my social responsibility at that time was to say what I was supposed to say to act professional. I got very, very poor advice on how to save my job and was perfectly willing to sort of let it just get taken away. I didn't fight hard at all. And I think sometimes that's the self-sabotaging, I hate myself, I deserve this aspect that can come from people who have had suffered trauma and grief. There's this blame game around that I must be doing something wrong for these bad things to happen again and again and again. And I'm sure people listening to this would probably go, yeah, well, you did. I didn't. None of us did. But my social responsibility, again, at the loss of my job was to try to hold my chin up, to walk, to be proud, you know, be firm. So, you know, I did all those things, but it was, I never truly had any support from any of my school community friends, teachers I taught with, coaches I coached with. Everyone stepped back and just stepped away and it was isolating and it was horrible and it felt judgmental and it was quiet. And so my job it was my job to repair something that I didn't break. But because I was the major player 
in the whole scenario. It was my job to fix it. So my theme as I go along here is that very typically we put the burden of normalcy, we put the burden of healing, we put the burden of being okay on the person that is the least okay and needs, needs the most help. And it becomes the job of that person to take care of everyone else. And then finally, obviously my next huge loss was Molly. And people that understand grief and loss are very, very clear on how individual and long and profound it takes. When I think of Molly and losing Molly, I can remember in the early days, people just rallied. I said to Kenny many times, if we had lost Molly during COVID, it would have been nothing like it was. And I don't know how we would have survived without all of the support that we had. Molly's funeral and hundreds of people coming to the hospital and all of the things that were put into place for us, people just took care of us and we needed it. We needed all of those things. Some of my most tender memories of the support we got were people that came by later. We were surrounded by people early on. I think sometimes that initial rush of support is as much to soothe the friends and people helping you as it is for them to bring you support. People want to be around. They want to hear it. They want to be a part of it. They want to process it. Weddings and funerals, they bring us together. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, this is going to end. This is going to end. It's going to get quiet. And it did slowly, but you know, I would come home and have two or three dinners on my back porch. I was feeding the neighborhood. And then pretty soon it was one dinner. And then pretty soon two or three days would go by and nothing had been left. You know, life moves along and the conveyor belt of life is very, very different speed-wise depending on who you are or the grief story. My conveyor belt is unbelievably slow, slow, sad walk. Whereas Molly's friends' conveyor belts are a bit faster, like a trot or a jog. And then the parents of the friends might be even a bit faster because the further you get away from being close to Molly, the faster your recovery trajectory is, the faster you are up the highway of grief than those who are suffering the immediate loss. What that does is puts an incredible pressure on, on me. So I talk about Molly all the time. I'm in a place now where I don't care. If it makes somebody uncomfortable, then, you know, don't be in my life. I'm to a point now where I'm much better at sort of being alone and accepting this. Early on, there were times when people would say, you know, oh, what's wrong? You look sad today. You know, it's like six months after Molly's death. Well, of course I look sad. I have a dead kid. But to them, it doesn't come to mind right away. It really is our job to put together a solid face for the world. My friend Jen posted a thing on Facebook, and, and this is where social media, <laughs> you know, the isolation of grief and how isolating it is. Social media is really, really helpful for people like me who want to take in information, but don't necessarily want to respond right away or can respond in writing, you know, in a response and not have to commit to verbalizing something. I think it's what's great about podcasts. Somebody can listen to me in the privacy of their own home and they can shut it off if it's too much, if it's boring, they can keep listening if they like it, process the information at their own speed. I ache for the parents like Coach Ludi and Grace M's grandmother and mother even. I ache for people that had to, had to grieve alone without any sort of connection that you could do from the privacy of your home. Sometimes we, you know, trash talk social media, but I can be in a Zoom call or you know, an online event with 500 mothers. <laughs> and I'm in my living room in my pajamas, unbathed <laughs> in the middle of grief. And I'm surrounded by this support. I really ache for people that haven't been able to do this. So there was a, a meme on Facebook page. I think it was Jen Hunger, Rachel's mother. And it, it says, grief is more than missing someone. It is an unrelenting ache for reality to be different and for the impossible to come true. So people often say to me, you know, I'm, I really miss the old Barb when you're going to be back to your normal, happy self. And Molly would want you to be happy and, you know, don't be sad. Enjoy the memories you had. <laughs> and I know that people mean well by these things, but those to me are just, are just throat punches. They've again, put on to me, Molly would want you to be happy. Okay. I'm failing Molly because I'm not happy. Come on, enjoy the memories you've had. Well, of course I enjoy the memories, but what makes memories easy to enjoy is that you're creating more. When all you have are the memories and there's no ability to create more with somebody who was not even in high school yet, remembering the memories is as sad as it is happy. Again, this all comes back to me. The other piece as the mother is that in my grieving, that's fine, but I didn't stop being Gracie's mother. And so for Gracie's sake, there were many times I had to put aside my desperate devastation to provide support for her because I'm her mother and she's still here. And there were times in the weeks and months and years after Molly's death, and still sometimes it happens, where she'll look at me and say, I'm still here, mom. And you know, that's a double-edged sword. The fact that she's still here is what makes it okay. The thought of losing her is paralyzing. 
so there's both sides to this, but my fear and my job, one more responsibility for the griever is to keep Molly alive somehow, to keep her memory succinct. This little girl, Anya, would be 20 years old now. She died in 2010, a long time ago. She's right around Gracie's age. And she died at age eight. Gracie was 15 when Molly died. So all those years later, she's a very well-known little girl. This foundation is phenomenal. And in talking with Christine, her mother, Anya's mother, so many times what came back to her in her explanation of why she did what she did was to share Anya's light, that Anya was light. And she wanted to keep her alive by utilizing what happened to her in a way that would help other people. A really big connection for me too is dragonflies. Molly made this dragonfly for my mother. It's like a clay, female clay sort of dragonfly. I have it somewhere. And Molly comes to me, I believe, as dragonflies. I'll tell you, they follow me around like crazy in the warm weather in weird ways. Not always, but when they do, I just figure it's Molly. And sort of the logo for Friends of Anya has a dragonfly in it, like a hand-drawn dragonfly. And so there are dragonflies all over that house, you know, copper ones and pewter ones and glass ones and paintings. And it was really incredibly comforting to me. Another really sort of unique coincidence, although there are no coincidences, is in the process of our lawsuit, Kenny and I looked at a bunch of different attorneys. And one of them was in this beautiful house on the west side of Manchester. And every time I go by that house, anytime I'm driving up that road, I always wave at the house and thank the attorney that we spoke with for how much help he provided at the beginning. We didn't end up choosing him, but I'm following my little GPS to get to the Friends of Anya and it's in that house. It's in the house that Kenny and I spent several hours in deciding whether or not to use this particular law firm for our lawsuit. That is such a weird coincidence is I've waved at that house every time I've seen it since Molly's death. And now here it is, a place that, you know, I Google mapped my way to find. The visit was incredible and it just solidified for her to acknowledge as well that so much of managing grief and sharing grief and making it socially acceptable falls on the griever. There was another meme that I saw recently that isn't about grief, but it talked about how we teach children with disabilities. We teach them and spend hours teaching them how to integrate, how to act a certain way to fit into society. Why aren't we teaching society how to accept them the way they are? When I think of my years as a learning disability specialist, and I worked with a lot of kids with ADHD and high-functioning autism like Asperger's syndrome, really the push from society is to get these kids normal enough to be included. Well, they should be included as abnormal as they are. It doesn't matter. And I really, really equate those two things. We put it on the child with a disability to try to fit in. How about we all just accept the child the way that child is? And this goes for adults and anyone as well. Put a lot of pressure as a society on, on the injured and the weak and the grieving and all to make it right. Some of the social aspects of grief that happen, and I'm going to read from a book a little bit, and then I have another thing I'm going to read about grief. There's withdrawal, isolation, grieving style. People grieve very differently. About a month before Molly's death, maybe two months, another girl her age died of a brain tumor. And that family, it was completely silent and private about it. They didn't want any public displays. They didn't want anything. They just wanted to be left alone. They circled the wagon and closed the doors. That would not work for me. Not in a hundred million years would I be okay doing it that way. But there are people who need and must grieve in, in that exact way. Sometimes my inclination is to go and, hey, hey, talk, you know, try to get them to grieve like me. We all want to connect and we all want to help. Nope, nope. I pray so hard for that family. I think about them. I say that little girl's name. I'm not going to say that little girl's name on this podcast because that would betray a simple request that her family made that this not be a public thing. So that comes into grieving style. Unrealistic expectations of others. I talked about Roy shortly after Molly's death and him saying, all right, enough. You've had enough time. You've got to put this away now. You've got to clean up your house. You've got to move on. Life has to continue. Okay. I was not at all ready for that. And he wasn't ready to give me more time. Are either one of us wrong? Absolutely not. We had very, very different needs at that time and very different ways of processing that grief. What did I lose? Roy. So I'd already lost Kenny. I'd already lost Molly now. I was clinging to Gracie, hoping that she'd be okay. And this support system in my life, I lost because the social implications of grief cannot be dictated by one person. You can't tell somebody what to do and have them do it. Even if you think you're right, even if it would work for you, it doesn't mean it works for that person. And then negative judgment. I haven't had too much of this right to my face. My friend Robin was so good in the beginning. Oh my God, hours and hours of just sitting with me and letting me 
grieve and be sad and just being okay with it. Just trying to get through all that. And then finding out she had an ulterior motive. That was hard to take, but she, she never said to my face that I needed to be different. What I did notice is the dropping off of people. There were certain people that could stay very, very focused and involved. And there were other people that just had to back away. And again, this is societal judgment. This is grieving style. There's a quote in the Baha'i faith that says, I have made death a messenger of joy for thee. Wherefore dost thou grieve? So the Baha'i faith believes that only happiness and redemption and love comes in our spiritual journey and that death is a celebration. You're finally free from the physical constraints, that we're here in these physical constraints to develop spiritual qualities that will benefit us in whatever comes next. What I like about this is it, it doesn't put all these social constructs on it. The faith is full of writings on how to be kind and how to be a good person. There are hundreds of writings around backbiting and saying mean things and being divisive. And when I look at the process of grief, for the most part, the Baha'is in my life have been very, very, very helpful and supportive because I think they take a very non-judgmental and a bit of a detached approach. Another piece of social reactions and things that happen after you die on a social level is spiritual. People that have church relationships that stop going to church, the number of moms and dads that have been sort of ignored by their churches because they're not moving along quickly, because they're not healing quickly enough. And then the whole questioning, how could God let this happen to me? That's not a question I've ever asked. And I, and I just think I have a, a different relationship with God, maybe. I feel that God gives us a lot of freedom to make choices and that most of the things that happen to us that are bad, you know, we do to ourselves. But I think this is why I'm sitting here on a snowy afternoon talking about how Molly's death has changed me socially. In a social setting, death disrupts the dynamic equilibrium. I've talked about balance before, and there's a give and take in any social situation. I'm auditioning for a show that the NAMI puts on, New Hampshire Mental Health Advocates. And it's a chance for people to tell their mental illness stories. And I call mine, oh no, here she comes. <laughs> and in all of my life and everything I've gone through, I have definitely felt that my traumatic experiences make me feel like I'm on the outside looking in. Socially, especially socially. I live in a very, very provincial town. You are defined by the neighborhood you grew up in and what your parents did for work. And those things never change. White's Park sits in the middle of, of the West End and the North End. It sort of divides the two. And the North End is blue collar, hardworking, beer drinking, you know, blue collar people. The West End is doctors and attorneys and, you know, the first street in Concord that had houses that had mortgages, we call it Mortgage Hill, these big, beautiful homes. And the park sits sort of right in the middle of it. So I grew up on the bottom of the park, hardcore North Ender. Maybe an upper crest North Ender because I went to Kimball School, not Walker School. And again, you're defined by your park in your elementary school. And then now my house is on the top of the park, so I'm in a nicer neighborhood. However, I'm still below the hill. I'm on one street below the fancy street, so I'm not quite there. I bring all this up because the role that it plays in what grief and trauma has done to me is fairly significant because part of you emotionally gets trapped in the time frame the grief happens. So I have a huge piece of Barbara Higgins that will forever be between seven and 13, that age because I had traumatic things happening to me at that time. I will have a huge piece of me forever be in my late teens and early 20s for a very different reason. That was when I became a good runner and got a free college scholarship and all of the things that were good in my life because of the sort of the trauma. There's a part of me that remains stuck and angry and confused and, and still sort of stunned at the things that happened to me in my job loss and how that came to be and how people can get away with horrible things and think nothing of it. And so I have a piece of me that's very, very stuck there. I was 48, that was like 10, 11 years ago. So I was like 46, 47, late 40s. And then of course, forever is May 7th, 2016. It is amazing still. And this is another thing that makes social interaction difficult. Time stopped for me then. So I'll be like, oh yeah, that was two or three years ago. And I realized, no, that was two or three years before Molly's death. So now it's eight or nine years ago. The number of times I make this mistake and my perception of life, I have to stop and really think about what year is this and how long has this been? And when I look back at the years right after Molly's death and how my life was just incinerated, it's logical that I would have a social construct from that, a social fallout, so to speak. It's funny, if I, if I wanted to go out for dinner tonight and just go hang with a friend, I really only have two or three people I think I could just call and feel comfortable saying, hey, do you want to go for dinner? I know hundreds of people. And I work out with people and, and I have great relationships with these people. My friendships tend to be very situational. When I'm at the gym, I have my gym friends. I have tons of people at the gym that I love with all my heart. 
I don't know if I feel comfortable picking up the phone and saying, hey, let's go get a beer or let's go for dinner. I just don't. I have a lot of acquaintances and people in my life who love me. And if I'm hurting your feelings by saying this, I apologize. It comes from within me, but I, I have a group of high school friends, so I could call them. So, you know, if I really sat down and really truly thought about it, if any of my college friends were nearby, my BUOG group, I could call them and feel comfortable hanging with them. But in my, in my little life here, I'm pretty socially isolated. My social interactions come with the things that I do. CrossFit gives me social interactions. My teaching job gives me social interaction. This whole journey gives me social interaction, but just hanging out and doing things with people, it's so, so much less. I spend so much of my life in the house. I mean, as we all did from the pandemic. So I, I made a list here too of the social responsibilities of the griever. And we've talked about that a little bit. Reactions. We say something and, and there's a reaction from somebody. So I know very much when I start to talk about something related to Molly or her death, I watch so closely the expressions on people's faces. Sometimes expressions can pass by quickly and I can tell pretty quickly whether or not I'm being listened to with open ears or whether the person really doesn't want to hear what I have to say. Be strong. The number of people that have told me how strong I am, it's a compliment and I don't want, to, I don't want people to stop telling me I'm strong. I need to be reminded that I have strength sometimes. But I don't have a choice. I have no choice but to be strong. A person with no food in the woods has no choice but to eat bugs and things that they can find. They're not being strong to eat the bugs. They don't want to die. You get, you get very, very driven by your life, your inner, inner needs for maintaining an alive state. So I am strong. I will say I'm very strong. And I will also say that based on the things that have happened to me in my life, I could be in a much, much worse situation than I'm in. Molly would want you to be happy. I brought this up already. When somebody says that to me and I'm not happy, I just feel like I'm failing Molly. Okay, Molly would want me to be happy and I'm not. One more way that I'm a lousy mother to Molly. Survivor's guilt. I don't know that I have survivor's guilt in the traditional sense that we think about it with people that come back from battle and their platoon is decimated and they're still alive. But I do wish that it had been me and not her. As devastating as my death would have been to Gracie and Molly, they would have each other forever and ever and ever. And long after I'm gone anyway, that was why I had Molly. So Gracie wouldn't grow old without a sibling close to her. And now that's what exactly what will happen to her. Don't let your grief make others uncomfortable. So the hardest thing for me would be like at dance recitals, like Molly's senior class, the dance recital, all the seniors get up and talk about where they're going to college. And I still feel like Molly was just on that stage. These dancers lost Molly when, when they were in middle school. By the time you graduate high school, you don't even really remember middle school anymore. It's like 15 plays ago, six recitals ago, it's forever. And so they don't remember. And so only one of like the five or six seniors that were Molly's tightest friends said anything about her. And it was devastating to me. Part of me thinks I shouldn't be sharing this because I'll make the people that didn't talk about Molly feel bad. Well, I felt bad. She's gone and forgotten. So for me as the grieving mother who's still stuck in the reality of like two minutes ago, she was alive and now she's not. That's how it feels for me sometimes. That was really hard. I had to put on a smile. I had to act in a way that wouldn't make people uncomfortable being around me. I don't want to ruin their recitals because, because my experience is sad. I remember taking Gracie. We went to a Halloween party. One of Gracie's dance friends, they put on the best Halloween parties every year. Oh my gosh. We always went and they came to the one or two that we did. And we went and it was after Molly's death. And about three quarters into this party, Gracie started just falling apart. And she went and hid. And I'm like, why are you hiding? And she's like, I don't want to ruin everyone else's good time. So I went and got one friend and I said, look, I don't want to ruin your fun. We'll just go sit with Gracie for a little while. And she's like, oh my God, of course. Well, pretty soon all the kids were like piled on top of Gracie, this little space that she had hidden out in. The mother and another mother were concerned that Gracie was ruining the party. And they didn't say it that way, but you know, it was, it was just this concern, like we're supposed to be here and have fun. And Gracie gave it a valiant effort. So we left a little early. Look, look, we're going to go early. Don't worry. It's okay. Part of it was she really was just done and needed to be home. And part of it was, I didn't want to ruin the party because my kid is dead. Let me just say that again. I didn't want to ruin the party because my kid is dead. This is sometimes some of the most difficult pieces of grief. My sobbing over Molly loss happens in the car and when I'm home alone. It's not something I do in front of anybody. I'll do it here because I feel like I'm doing it alone. I'm not waiting on a reaction from someone sitting across from me. I will say the number of people and organizations that continue to promote Molly as a beacon of happiness is profound. And I do feel that once this foundation is set up, a lot of this will become easier. People waiting for Barb to come back. And I addressed that already. The only way the old Barb can come back is if Molly never died, because that Barb had two daughters, Gracie and Molly. 
Now, this Barb has one daughter here, one son in heaven, daughter in heaven, and a new baby boy. I will never be that Barb, nor should I be. Years ago, before Gracie was born, I had a runner named Donna, and we were sitting on a bus going to a cross-country meet. And she said, Donna Blanchard, hi, Donna. And she said to me, do you think he'll change after Gracie's born? And I know that some of my runners were concerned that I wouldn't be as fun anymore, like I would be different. I said, well, of course I'll change. I'll be a mother. I'll have a baby. I have to change. But I think the essence of Barb will remain the same. Well, the essence of Barb did remain the same because I added this beautiful bundle of punch to my life. In losing Molly, that didn't add to me. That just blasted a big giant hole right through my gut. And now there's a piece of me missing. You can look right through me and see out the other side. That type of change is completely different and really irreparable in most ways. People tire of hearing the story. You know, I bring up Molly all the time and I can't help it. She's right here all the time, present in my head and her stories matter to me. So there are times when I realize, oh my God, I'm talking about Molly again. It's all I talk about. And so I apologize about it. Most people don't care. Most people are okay with it. But I do know that all of Molly's friends are elsewhere now. They're in college or they've moved away or they're at Disney or they're doing all these different things and they're not here. And the Molly that I know never, never left here. <laughs> She's still 13. And then self-sabotage. So I've talked about this before. I talked about it, I think, in the last episode where I block out periods of time for me to get things done and then I fill those things with other, other tasks. So I'm going to give a couple of examples. Since my last podcast episode and how I recorded this whole episode, I recorded a whole episode and never hit record. And it was a terrible episode. So I think that was the universe's way of telling me to cut it out. So I re-recorded it. It was much better. But basically, I had set aside time to do things. And then what I do is I just forget. And I fill that time with all of the random busy things that fill my life. So on Friday, I had set aside time to record the podcast. And instead, I went and coached a CrossFit class because the coach that was supposed to do it needed a replacement. I went down. There wasn't even any athletes. I could have actually just not even gone and done everything I was supposed to do, but I didn't. I made that choice. And it wasn't until I got back and realized I missed an online meeting with somebody and I hadn't recorded the podcast. And now I had a busy VLAX afternoon and I had a, a chiropractor appointment and all of these things. And it was just like, I, I did this to myself. I, I, had set a, I had set up a day and I didn't follow through. So today, I'm closing the door. <laughs> today, I, a similar thing sort of happened to me. It's, it, there's a big blizzard here. So that disrupts the normal flow. But Jack was still taken off to, to big boy school. So I have a Jack-free day. And these are days that I just rush and rush and rush to get things done. Well, we have this snowy driveway and, you know, Kenny's health is, is good, but not great. And, and it's easier for us sometimes to shovel a couple of times so you're not shoveling all this deep snow. So I shoveled out enough for him to get the car out to take Jack. And then I thought, you know what, this can be my workout. So I shoveled the entire driveway. It was fine. I didn't have anything really scheduled until 11 o'clock. So my morning can be showering and all of these things. So I did all of those things. The person that I was meeting with online on Focusmate didn't show up, which is fine. Because I sat on Focusmate and worked and I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have sat and done that work if I wasn't waiting for this person to arrive. I got some organizing done. I went into, you know, my podcast stuff and all this. I'm like, look at you, Barbara Jean, you're following protocol. You're doing what you're supposed to do. And sometimes looking at my lists can get me overwhelmed. So I knew I would need to work out today. It's the CrossFit Open weekend and, you know, you need to, you have like three days to get the workout in and I like to get it done the first time to see if I want to try it again. You know, all those kinds of things. So I saw that a whole bunch of people were going to the noontime class. So I looked at my VLAC schedule and saw that I had no VLAC phone calls until two o'clock. So I had this chunk of time now. My person didn't show up. My call was over before noon and I didn't have a VLAC person until two o'clock. So I went and worked out at noon. It was a big class. I'm glad I went. But what did I do? I had my day blocked out and I just spontaneously rearranged. I didn't even really think about this. I just go, all right, this is what I'm going to do. The meaningful piece here about my self-sabotage is I'm driving home and I realize I'm going to be a little bit late for my VLAX call because the weather's bad. I messaged the family on running a little late. And as I'm driving, you know what? I'm going to stop at Rite Aid because I need this, 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 and this. And I'm halfway to the pharmacy and I realize, Barbara, this is not your shopping time. Not only are you not doing your podcast work and all this, you're going to miss a VLAX call. The fact that I could step out of myself and hold, count myself to task and get home is huge growth for me. But this is my self-sabotage. Another example is when I first started my spiritual mentoring, KK had me set some goals and I set these goals out. In the meantime, a friend of mine asked me would I come teach part-time at her charter school and I was excited to do so. 
And then I was suddenly acting managing director appointed by the Department of Ed. So now I had this 60 hour a week job and I was thrilled. I mean, I think it fed my ego a little bit. I also really loved what I was doing. I love kids. I wanted to help my friend own the school. Ultimately, what I did was sabotage all the goals I had set, the Molly B Foundation, getting my book written, all of the things that were my goals. Nowhere in that goal did it say run a charter school. That wasn't anywhere, but I let, I just let this opportunity shelve everything else. Now, had things turned out differently with the school, that may not have been a bad thing. I may have had a different vehicle through which to build a Molly B Foundation and to, and to process everything that was going on. Ultimately, what I did was just trash a year's worth of spiritual mentoring work and goal setting by jumping into something else, jumping in to save someone else. And that's me. I, I jump in the lake all the time to save the drowning person again and again and again. Very seldom works out in the way that I hope that it does. These are some examples of how the journey of grief and all the responsibilities the griever has and acquires in the process can really pull you down and really, really, really be a heavy weight. When I look back over year after year after year, so another piece of grief in the social construct of grief is how the reality is for the griever and how society accepts that reality. So year one for me, I was just decimated. I was hobbled completely. I was just a cement ball to the face. All I could do was sit. And I actually physically sat for months. The only thing I would get up to do is have drinks. And I, I began a pretty unhealthy drug habit during that time. So the only time I really could make myself go do anything was if I knew I was going to, going to have my pain relieved by artificial substances, if I was going to get drunk or get high. That was it. That was the only time. And I can remember in those moments when you have the first rush of a chemical that helps you feel better. One of my prescription drugs was Xanax. I didn't struggle with those drugs, but I quickly went off regular Xanax and went on time release because regular Xanax, you get a rush. You take it and you have this rush of relief and a bit of euphoria. And that is incredibly addicting because that's how you want to feel all the time. And in those moments, I'm like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. And then when that feeling wears off, you want it back again. Grief and addiction. That's another whole podcast episode and series. For me, the first year was just that. And for the most part, people were accepting of it. There was a rule like you have five minutes before the event to cancel. So I would say yes to things. My friend Polly wanted to take me to see Sean Colvin. I love Sean Colvin. Listening to music was torture. At the last minute, I just couldn't go. I, I couldn't do it. What did she do? She got her Molly B shirt signed by Sean Colvin for me. You know, incredible, incredible. And other times she wanted me to go see a band called Lake Street Dive and I couldn't go. And my friend Mary was over visiting, who's a musician, Mary Fagan, shout out. Polly and Mary went and saw Lake Street Dive and now Polly and Mary have this wonderful friendship. There are these paths in grief where my inability to participate isn't necessarily a bad thing. And, and it was necessary for me. Year two was worse than year one for me. That's when the fog lifted, the numbness went away, and the stark reality of my new life came into play. And I can remember the year anniversary of Molly's death was a very hard time for me emotionally. It was a very hard time for me family-wise. It was the year anniversary. Now suddenly there's this idea that your year is up. Now you put it away and you get back to normal. It's been a year. Okay, well, a year means nothing. <laughs> could have been an hour. It could have been never. So year two for me was incredibly difficult in maintaining any sort of social normalcy. I started working a little bit during year two, not a lot, but a little. I traveled to a couple of educational workshops thinking that being with people that don't know me was actually helpful. So those were ways that I sort of started to reintroduce myself. But the people in my life at that time, the person that I partied with all the time, and you know, there were, there were expectations there as well that I, you know, I should feel better. Or I should give more attention here. Or I should be busier there. So many shoulds. And people, I don't think people mean badly by it but it's very, very difficult. Year three for me was, going into year three was the first turn the corner year because we'd settled the lawsuit and the reality of Molly's demise and never returning was just clear. And so that was the point of piss or get off the pot. <laughs> okay, Barbara, she's never coming back. When I started spiritual mentoring and, and really put it out there that I was trying to get better, I got incredible support, huge support. But how I felt sometimes that people were just relieved I was happy because it would be easier for them. Again, if this isn't the reality for you, I'm not trying to be insulting. I'm trying to acknowledge to every other abused victim, grieving mother, grieving child, grieving father, spouse, whatever your loss and your grief is, how you feel and perceive is what I'm talking about. If you can relate to how it feels when somebody says, oh, I'm so happy to see a smile on your face, that isn't helpful to me because it just makes me feel like, oh, I'm smiling now. So they're just glad that I'm not sad about Molly anymore. To me, it goes right back to Molly. 
when I step out of myself and think about what, how I would say that to somebody, I would just say, I know inside nothing is different, but you're beginning the process of mixing some happiness with your sadness. Now I'm not saying I'm glad the sad is gone. I'm just saying, good for you. You're putting it together. For me, that's a logical difference. That mom that I, you know, that I read the thing, the last thing I'm going to tell her is to try to feel better. She had two babies in her belly and she loves and loves one. And every time she looks at the one, she sees the one that isn't there. That's just the reality for her. Not my place to tell her how to cope with that. Only my place to support and love her. And that's what I will try to do. Uh, year four for me was getting over the brain tumors and all the health and the real, the real beginning of the journey for Jack. Again, all the health stuff, the brain tumors, Kenny's kidney transplant, all of that in my social life was incredibly helpful because it just provided something else for people to focus on, quite frankly. We gave Molly a sweet 16 that year. I was bald as can be. I put a little bow barrette in my little razor stubble hair. It was wonderful because it was a celebration. It was a way that I could say, thank you, thank you, thank you for, for standing by us. And almost three years after Molly's death, 350 people came to celebrate. Now, granted, you could say, well, who'd pass up a nice party? I was afraid nobody would come and they did. So that was a nice social thing. And then the last two years, about year five and year six, life is beginning to have a new normal routine. That was another thing I hated in the beginning. You'll find a new normal. Well, I don't want a new normal. I want my old normal back. But I have one now. Normal will never be what y'all think it is. There's no Southern twang. Normal for me will be this very, very dark and twisted inside reality that really doesn't go away. In talking to Christine yesterday at the Friends of Anya, she's twice as far into her journey. I'm six years. I'm in year six and she's in year 12. She's twice as far into this as me. And I do this too. When I look at someone that's in their first year, I just go, oh, because I would never want to go back to that. So here I am thinking, all right, year six. And I said, yes, 2016, she died. And she went, oh, oh, be good to yourself. Please be kind to yourself. You're nowhere near where I am. And she's right. I'm nowhere near where she is. I look at her foundation. I immediately feel like a failure. That's what I said to her. But she's 12 years out. Six years from now, I know the Molly B Foundation will be doing so much more. Who did I get this support from? Somebody that lost a child. Somebody that weathered a lawsuit. Somebody that understands how life-changing and life-ending in many ways this type of grief is. So in wrapping up, I'm going to read a rather long quote, which I really, really like about grief and what it means. And it was on a friend of mine's page. Her name is Whitney. Hi, Whitney. I'm not going to tell her story today. Someday I'll have her as a guest, though. She has a really interesting life. And she posted this post the other day that was phenomenal. And it was about grief. What she was acknowledging in her post was that she was really struggling and having a hard time. If you are suffering from brokenness, I want to just say that I understand that feeling. <sighs> I kept reading this post because if somebody understands broken and is willing to share, we're part of the same driving, you know, we're plugged into the same toaster. So the post had a really intense summation of grief. So I'm going to end my podcast with this because all of these words resonate with me in meaningful ways. And they aren't my words, but, but I read this post at like three in the morning I sat up in bed. That's how intense the post was for me. Grief is piercingly particular. There is hardly any limit to the way loss will find us entering into our lives, not only through the death of someone we love, but also through the myriad other ways life can wrest from us what we have held dear. When grief does find us, however it finds us, it shapes itself precisely to the details of our lives. It fits itself to our habits and routines our relationships, our priorities, what we have organized our lives around, all that makes us who we are in this world. Because of this, no one will know our grief as we do. No one will inhabit it in the same way we do. No one will entirely understand what it's like to live with our specific shattering. There is something beautiful about this. Our particular grief reflects the particular wonder of what we had, a grace that visited our life in a way designed especially for us. Yet, this very quality can compound our grief because it leaves us feeling so alone. One of grief's most insidious aspects lies in how isolated it can become. This aspect of grief calls for intentionality from us, that we resist grief's capacity to cut us off from those around us at the time we need them most. For all its particularity, the heart-rending and hopeful reality of grief is that it is universal. It hardly needs saying that in our living, each of us will know loss. Though we will never know how it feels to live in someone else's loss, 
Grief has the capacity to connect us, even across deep divides. Fierce loss can forge fierce connections. Grief holds the power to help us recognize our shared fragility and also to call forth our mutual resilience as we meet one another in sometimes unspeakable pain. Has there been a time when grief became a place of connection, a bridge, a door? How was it for you to allow this or to seek it out? Is there a connection you are needing now? Who might help? And this was called Blessed for the Brokenhearted. That whole thing illustrates in an articulate way what all my fumbling words try to share. That it's universal, that we share it, that we all have it. That rather than looking at how our grief is different and isolating ourselves, let's find the commonalities in our grief and help each other. And I think if this story of mine can do anything, I would want it to do that. I want the social reality of loss and death to be more normal for people. I'll close on an up note. One of my very, very favorite memories around the Molly B Foundation supporting RB Productions is a parent asking an RB person, a staff person, who is Molly? And thinking that Molly was somebody that was alive because their child came home talking about Molly, Molly B, Molly B, Molly B. When she realized that Molly B was, you know, a child that had done RB that had died, she sought me out after, after one of the performances and just shared how wonderful it was for her to be able to talk to her daughter about a dead child in a way that wasn't rife with fear and isolation and doom. That as sad and traumatic as Molly's death is and was and will always be, Molly B <laughs> provides opportunities for kids to find happiness through theater and through the arts and music and dance. And she's talked about as if she exists. My friend Virginia's daughter, Skye, also talks about Molly all the time. A couple of their family friends asked, oh, who's Molly? Is she a family friend? <laughs> well, she is a family friend. She just shows up in different ways. These are the ways that we can take something that's unspeakable and difficult and use it as a bridge instead of a divide. So anyway, I hope this all made sense to you. I'm, I'm a bit, I'm always, always, always on the verge of tears, it seems lately. I think it's just big, you know, these are big things to talk about. And I'm at that place, going to finish year six, where I can actually have the, the ability to see light through the fragments of my shattered self. You feel guilty about it in the beginning. I don't want to have joy. I don't want to be happy that Molly died. I don't want anything good to happen because of her death. Well, she's dead. And so it can either be bad or good. So I'm to the point now where sharing these things is, is a way to, to share Molly's light and love and to make, I'm just jumbling now, just to make it matter so that she's, so that we're all okay and she can continue to be a good part of everything. If you live in the Northeast, well, actually this storm is all over the country. I hope that when you listen to this, you can look back on the storm and have shoveled your driveways well. I hope that you enjoy life turning into March and the ultimate coming of spring. Look forward to a couple of more episodes around the specifics of grief and trauma in whatever form it is and all of the kinds that I have shared. I don't limit it to losing Molly because it comes in a lot, of, a lot of costumes, grief and trauma. But I'll talk a lot more about how it affects us as life goes on. So do something good for yourself. Be kind. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.